This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear You Are Now Entering the Human Heart by Janet Frame, which was published in The New Yorker in March of 1969. Teacher's not afraid. Are you? The attendant persisted. He leaned forward, pronouncing judgment on her, while she suddenly jerked her head and lifted her hands in panic to get rid of the snake. The story was chosen by Edgar Carrot, whose short story collections include Suddenly a Knock on the Door and Fly Already. Hi, Edgar. Hi. So what made you choose a story by Janet Frame to read today? Well, first of all, I, I love her short fiction. I think that there is something very uh, free in it. Whenever uh, she writes, you you really think feel that she's not aiming for some kind of a goal or she's not trying to initiate a specific kind of a dialogue uh, with, with her readers, but she just kind of uh, floats or levitates, you know, this kind of feeling of floating in zero gravity. And this is always... a. Uh, what I aspire for when I write, to, to forget about everything and just uh, be. Do you think that was how she actually wrote, or is that an effect that she pulls off? Uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm naive. I think <laughs> this is how she actually wrote. And actually, to be honest, you know, there is something, uh, uh, there are many writers who are uh, much more uh, famous and well-read from Janet Frame. Like, she's an amazing writer, but still... And uh, so I don't think I, I don't think that this this style wins you glory or or many people, <laughs> but I think that it kind of wins you some uh, some peace of mind. It's I, I think that you know that writing has many functions, and and I think that let's say some writers want to communicate something to an audience, but I feel with Janet Frames that when she writes, she just wants to figure out what this word is all about and what is she all about mm-hmm. and she so she's uh, she was a new zealand writer and uh, you're an israeli writer and were you first reading her in hebrew how did you come across her work i came across her work uh, in a writers festival uh, when i was in a panel and uh, one of the writers in the panel a new zealand writer uh, read a story of her and the story kind of struck me and stayed with me. And as I was going to the hotel, I was just uh, kind of uh, connecting to the Internet and trying to read whatever I could read mm-hmm. by her online. Yeah. Was that a long time ago or, or recently? Is she a, a new discovery for you? Uh, it was uh, 17 years ago. Okay. So you've, you've read more since. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On paper, you and she are, are quite different and quite different uh, writers, and obviously she died uh, more than a decade ago. But do you feel like that there are parallels between her work and yours? What I uh, feel when I when I read her is as if that there is something about writing that uh, she needs to write to survive. And uh, and I must say that again, you know, this is something that uh, that I very rarely feel when I read writers. I think that uh, most of the writers that I read, they have some kind of a 
something very competent in them. Like, you know, if they wouldn't be writers, and I'm not saying that, you know, they would be a bankers, but they could be become, I don't know, but they could be conmen or, or whatever people who know how to put sentences and don't have much behind it do, you know. Mo- a lot of humanities, they could be, I don't know, car salesmen. <laughs> but with her, I feel that there is something about writing that she's not, she's not saying, oh, you know what, I'll do that. It's uh, it's something that uh, that uh, its prime existence is to write so she could read what she writes by finalizing this uh, the story she will be able to feel less a stranger to herself and that's something that I feel when I write does it work for you <laughs> well you know it's it's it, 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 <laughs> I, it's, I'm saying it's like, you know, I think uh, I'm trying to think of an example. It's like uh, I, you have uh, your roof is leaking and you put a tissue paper in the hole and then somebody says, does it work for you? And you say, you know, that's the best I got, you know. <laughs> well, this, this particular story, you're now entering the human heart. What stands out for you about, about this story? And, and do you think that it's a, a kind of representative example of, of Janet Frame's work? No, again, you know, I think, I think that when people talk about representative example of a, of a writer's work, I, I kind of, I always want to fend for the writer because I think that when you're a writer, every time you want to do something that is so unique that will not be able to become an example <laughs> for your work. I mean, it doesn't always work, but, but, but what I can say is that what I like about this story is that it's almost a borderline if you could call it a story, I think, you know, it could be a, seen as an anecdote. There is something about it. It's like I, I can see some, I don't know, a, a college professor that if you would give them, you know, this thing as a, as a story project, that they would fail you, you know. And I think that that's what I like about it. And I must say that, you know, that... I bet Janet Frame at that time was already well known, but but that for me it it was not a typical story to find in a New Yorker just because there was something very kind of a slight in it. Not a lot happens. It's kind of semi biographical. There is like you know okay, there is the heart metaphor, but apart from all that, it's like it's barely a story. Mm-hmm. And yet there's a lot in it. Yes, yes. So we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Edgar Carrot reading You Are Now Entering the Human Heart by Janet Frame. You are now entering the human heart. I looked at the notice. I wondered if I had time before my train left Philadelphia for Baltimore in one hour. The heart, ceiling eye, occupied one corner of the large exhibition hall, and from wherever you stood in the hall, you could hear it beating. Thump, 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 thump. It was a popular exhibit, and sometimes, when there were too many children about, the entrance had to be roped off, as the children loved to race up and down the blood vessels and match their cries to the heart's beating. I could see that the heart had already been punished for the day, The floor of the blood vessel was worn and dusty. The chamber walls were covered with marks, and the notice, 
You are now taking the path of a blood cell through the human heart, hang askew. I wanted to see more of the Franklin Institute and the Natural Science Museum across the street, but a journey through the human heart would be fascinating. Did I have time? Later. First, I would go across the street to the whole of North America, among the bear and the bison, and catch up the American flora and fauna. I made my way to the hall. More children, sitting in rows on canvas chairs, an elementary class from a city school, under the control of an elderly teacher, a museum attendant holding a basket, and all eyes gazing at the basket. Oh, I said, is this a private lesson? Is it all right for me to be here? The attendant was brisk. Surely, we're having a lesson in snake handling, he said. It's something new. Get the children young and teach them that every snake they meet is not to be killed. People seem to think that every snake has to be knocked on the head, so we're getting them young and teaching them. May I watch, I said? Surely, this is a common grass snake. No harm, no harm at all. Teach the children to learn the feel of them to lose their fear. He turned to the teacher. Now, Miss, Mrs., he said, Miss Aitchison. He lowered his voice. The best way to get through to the children is to start with the teacher, he said to Miss Aitchison. If they see you're not afraid, they won't be. She must be near retiring age, I thought. A city woman. Never handled a snake in her life. Her face was pale. She just managed to drag the fear from her eyes to some place in their depths where it lurked like a dark stain. Surely the attendant and the children noticed. It's harmless, the attendant said. He'd been working with snakes for years. Miss Aitchison, I thought again, a city woman, born and bred. All snakes were creatures to kill, to be protected from, alike the rattler, the copperhead, king snake, grass snake, venom and victims. Were there not places in the south where you couldn't go into the streets for fear of the rattlesnakes? Her eyes faced the lighted exit. I saw her fear. The exit light blinked, hooded. The children, none of whom had never touched a live snake, were sitting hushed, waiting for the drama to begin. One or two looked afraid as the attendant withdrew a grain snake about three feet long from the basket and with a swift movement, before the teacher could protest, draped it around her neck and stepped back, admiring and satisfied. There, he said to the class, your teacher has a snake around her neck and she's not afraid. Miss Aitchison stood rigid. She seemed to be holding her breath. Teacher's not afraid. Are you? The attendant persisted. He leaned forward, pronouncing judgment on her, while she suddenly jerked her head and lifted her hands in panic to get rid of the snake. Then, seeing the children watching her, she whispered, No, I'm not afraid. Of course not. She looked around her. Of course not, she repeated sharply. I could see her defeat and helplessness. The attendant seemed unaware, 
as if his perception had grown a reptilian covering. What did she care for the campaign for the preservation and welfare of copperheads and rattlers and common grass snakes? What did she care about someday walking through the woods or the desert and deciding between killing a snake and setting it free? As if there would be time to decide when her journey to and from school in downtown Philadelphia held enough danger to occupy her. In two years or so, she'd retire and be in that apartment by herself and no doorman, and everyone knew what happened then, and how she'd be afraid to answer the door and to walk after dark and carry her pocketbook in the street. There was enough to think about without learning to handle and love the snakes, harmless and otherwise, by having them draped around her neck for everyone, including the children, most of all the children, to witness the outbreak of her fear. See Miss Etchison touching the snake. She's not afraid at all. As everyone watched, she touched the snake. Her fingers recoiled. She touched it again. See, she's not afraid. Miss Etchison can stand there with a beautiful snake around her neck and touch it and stroke it and not be afraid. The faces of the children were full of admiration for the teacher's bravery. And yet, there was a cruelly persisting tension. They were waiting. Waiting. We have to learn to love snakes, the attendant said. Would someone like to come out and stroke teacher's snake? Silence. One shame-faced boy came forward. He stood petrified in front of the teacher. Touch it, the attendant urged. It's a friendly snake. Teacher's wearing it around her neck, and she's not afraid. The boy darted his hand forward, rested it lightly on the snake, and immediately withdrew his hand. Then he ran back to his seat. The children shrieked with glee. He's afraid, someone said. He's afraid of the snake. The attendant soothed. We have to get used to them, you know. Grown-ups are not afraid of them, but we can understand that when you are small, you might be afraid. And that's why we want you to learn to love them. Isn't that right, Miss Etchison? Isn't that right? Now who else is going to be brave enough to touch the teacher's snake? Two girls came out. They stood hand in hand, side by side, and stared at the snake and then at Miss Etchison. I wondered when the torture would end. The two little girls did not touch the snake, but they smiled at it and spoke to it, and Miss Aitchison smiled at them and whispered how brave they were. Just a minute, the attendant said. There's really no need to be brave. It's not a question of bravery. The snake is harmless, absolutely harmless. Where's the bravery when the snake is harmless? Suddenly, The snake moved around to face Miss Aitchison and thrust its flat head toward her cheek. She gave a scream, flung up her hands, and tore the snake from her throat and threw it on the floor. And rushing across the room, she collapsed into a small canvas chair beside the bear cabinet and started to cry. I didn't feel I should watch any longer. Some of the children began to laugh, some to cry. The attendant picked up the snake and nursed it. Miss Aitchison 
recovering, sat helplessly exposed by the small piece of useless torture. It was not her fault. She was city-bred. Her eyes tried to tell us. She looked at the children, trying in some way to force her admiration and respect. They were shut against her. She was evicted from them and from herself and even from her own fear-infested tomorrow because she could not promise to love and preserve what she feared. She had nowhere at that moment but a small canvas chair by the bare cabinet of the Natural Science Museum. I looked at my watch. If I hurried, I would catch the train from 30th Street. There would be no time to make the journey through the human heart. I hurried out of the museum. It was freezing cold. The icebreakers would be at work on the Delaware and the Susquehanna. The mist would have risen by the time I arrived home. Yes, I would just catch the train from 30th Street. The journey through the human heart would have to wait until some other time. That was Edgar Carrot reading You Are Now Entering the Human Heart by Janet Frame. The story appeared in The New Yorker in March of 1969 and was included in a collection of the same title in 1983. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Eckhart, you were saying that there's a metaphor of a heart in this story, and obviously there's also a model of a heart or a giant heart, a human heart. What do you think it, it's a metaphor for? There is this giant human heart, but the story takes place in an exhibit next to it. And I think that that's what I like in the story, that there are kind of many things that invite you as a writer to kind of to drain every last drop out of them. But there is something about uh, the way that Janet Frame writes it, that she keeps following what interests her. And she kind of takes passes that sometimes seem to be contradictory. You know, it's like a, you get close to somebody that maybe you shouldn't get close to. You dig- digress when you could kind of uh, again squeeze another drop of emotion or push a point a little bit further. But uh, there is something about the way that the story is written that it feels very much like a perception of somebody who's in a place and he looks around and you see what the person uh, sees at the time, but it doesn't feel as if he's a guide to this place. He's just kind of looking around, trying to figure out, trying to e- extract something out of it. And 
And in this sense, I think that, you know, that the setting of this huge human heart, a, a teacher a, a, a performing in front of a class of children and in the end finding yourself failing and humiliated. Like, I mean, you could do something really a mainstream Hollywood out of it. <laughs> But somehow uh, Janet Frame is able to get away with it because she doesn't exploit those metaphors. They kind of, they hang around. Okay, so... There is a huge human heart and gave her a good name for the story and you could connect it to things. But in the end, she always kind of takes some kind of a, a turn and goes somewhere that, at least for me, is a little bit unexpected. Yeah, it's almost as though this narrator is avoiding the, that heart. I mean, she's kind of drawn to it in the beginning and then she says, well, it's been punished and it's full of children and they're crying and it's all dusty and... and marked up, and so I'm going to go across the street. Maybe I'll come back to the heart later. It's almost a tease as an opener. Yes, and, and I think that, uh, that if you want to see, see it in, in this perspective, you could say that uh, basically she wants uh, to avoid the heart, and when we see a human interaction, and when, when we see what people have to go through in kind of in a very mundane, everyday setting... Then you say, okay, maybe I get it. You know, maybe it was a good move to avoid the heart in the first place. <laughs> and yet there it is going thump, 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 you know, in the corner. It's, it's, it's always in the background yeah. of the story because of the title. Yes. And, and, I, and you know, and it's one of the, the stories that I think that they, when you say to somebody, what's your favorite sentence in the story? And almost every reader would choose the same sentence, you know? And I think that they, That in, the, in this story, I think that every person would have his own his, uh, different favorite. And my favorite is, it's like the end of the sentence when, when he, she writes, because she couldn't promise to love and preserve what she feared. Mm -hmm. and, and there is something so powerful in it, because I think that uh, what's powerful about this situation is that you have this guy who wants to teach children that they shouldn't be afraid of all... all the snakes, and he's like very rational. You know, he's more in the shape of the brain, not in the shape of the heart. And everything he says like makes perfect sense. And what, what he wants to do is really, really uh, good and useful. And the teacher kind of plays along both because he's forced to it, because he's insensitive, and, but also because I think he doesn't resist, you know, the message that he's trying to carry. But in the end, there is her fears... Uh, are more powerful than, than her rationality and, and her role. And this, the, this sentence when she, she said she could not promise to love and preserve what she feared, it's really, for me, in a sentence, it says so much about humanity. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, the snake handler can only promise that because he's not afraid. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, he could have said... because she could not love and preserve what she feared. But she said but because she could not promise to love and preserve what she feared. It's not the, even the, the ability to make this action, but it's that she, when she comes to the exhibit, this notion begins to, exi to exist. You know, before they put a, a snake a, on her neck as some kind of educational a, prop, She, she did not fail, mm -hmm. but there was something about this kind of situation 
a very, very, if you think about it, a very rare situation where somebody puts a harmless snake around your neck. Is it kind of a made this option exist and then made her fail in that option? So I really what I like about the sentence is the use of promise. Mm-hmm. She could not promise to love and preserve what she feared. It's, it's like one step removed. It's not just loving, but it's, it's this kind of idea, this commitment. And, and the moment that you put the word promise, it's almost as if humanity cannot promise that. You know, yeah. we cannot really promise that we will be in a place and there will be some kind of rational sense that will tell us something. And in the end, we will do something irrational. You know, I mean, I guess it ha- happens in so many ways. I don't know when people... a cheat on their partners or when people shoplift something or when people lie when they shouldn't you know it's so so you cannot make this promise for humanity because because in the end I guess there is this acknowledgement that our heart is gonna fail us right we're weak I feel but but there is something I find very beautiful and sexy about this <laughs> about the this weakness really because because when you think about it it's like When you read the story, there are uh, two k- kind of characters, the ones who are n- afraid and the one who is not afraid, who is really the, the guy at the exhibit and who's, he's not afraid. He's like his heart and brain, they, they use the same frequency. And in a sense, I think that he's the character you're the least empathic to because he doesn't show you uh, the complexity of humanity. Uh, you know, he in, in a... sci-fi movie he would be a robot yeah he's he's very he's not very good at reading the people around him he doesn't understand the teacher and he doesn't see her fear yeah in in a sense I think that he, he doesn't see her fear but I think that he doesn't acknowledge her fear because her fear doesn't make any sense you know mm-hmm. and I can tell you my partner she's claustrophobic and I've been with her like in stuck elevators. And there is something about this experience that you know when when I'm stuck in an elevator uh, for me I don't know it's a sense of a uh, uh, release because you know when I'm outside of a, an elevator I'm always sure that I'm failing some something or someone you know <laughs> it's like it's like when when you're out of an elevator you could be late to an appointment or miss an appointment but you when you're in the stuck elevator this kind of idea you Of this imposed passivity actually kind of makes me feel really good you know when I'm stuck in elevators I, I get high on that and <laughs> and and my partner when she gets stuck in elevator it's really it stresses her in a way is that when I look at her like I look at the situation and I look at her and I say wow like you know she's seeing another movie she's she's reading another story she perceives another reality around her and because she's somebody who that I, I really uh, love and empathize with, I'm kind of uh, able to get scared too, you know? And <laughs> I think that it's, it's in a moment like this when I'm with her and I say, you know, everything is okay. And like for most of the time, I'm a little bit like the, the snake guy in the story, you know? I say to her, look, you know, is it going to come with help? You just love it. We have enough air. You don't have to breathe like that, you know? This is really strange and funny, you know? Mm-hmm. So I have these moments with her. But the moments where I look in her eyes and I see her fear and I feel with her, you know, without it making sense, I think this, this, these are some of the moments where I feel closest to her. I think that there is something about this kind of a, 
fracture or scar that, that you can see through it humanity. You can see through it what humanity is all about uh, instead of this kind of need that we many times have to dissect and put things separately. Then it's like w- when you make this cut, you, you, you get something that you cannot uh, capture in words. It's not, it's not just failure. It, you know, the ability to be in a place that is safe and to feel that it's not safe you know, it's so many things. It's emotion, it's imagination, it's a strange biological programming. I don't know what it is. It's it's your life story. It's being locked in a cupboard when you were a kid. It's so so many things, you know, in, in one moment. And, and the fact that it doesn't make any sense, that's what brings all its depths and, and history. Mm-hmm. I, and I think the, the fact that you see it is... is why you're a writer and you're you're not a snake handler oh but 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 i could you know but i could try snake handling <laughs> <laughs> i'm afraid of so many things but but you know claustrophobia and snakes it's like you know i'm the guy indiana jones wants with when he falls into the pit <laughs> well i want to um talk about one aspect of the story which is strange to me which is why we see it through the eyes of this narrator. Um, we know very little about this narrator. Uh, we know she's got a train to catch. We know she's visiting Philadelphia. She's going home to Baltimore. In fact, I'm saying she, but I don't know if it's she. I don't think there's a gender ever identified in the story. So first of all, why does Frame tell us so little about our narrator? And second of all, why do we see through this person's eyes instead of there just being an omniscient author voice showing us? I, th- I think it's, it's a great question, but, but when I read it, it was so kind of, a, for me, so intuitive that it's frame telling us something that kind of happened, you know? I don't know why, but I, I felt it was like kind of semi, I don't know, docu- documentary or biographical be, maybe just because of the fact that there, there was no advantage in the exa- <laughs> in in creating the, this uh, character. Like, I mean, this character doesn't doesn't give us much more than than this very acute uh, sensitivity uh, that that you find in many of Frame's uh, stories. And I think you know, it's like it's like it's a character that doesn't seem to have uh, any position world reality you know it's not like i mean you could imagine that it had histories that i don't know that it had loved and and uh, lost people that it had loved I, but but none of it exists in the end it's just this kind of voice of somebody who who notices things that others don't right i think sometimes sometimes you have this kind of a i don't know if i, I use this term uh, correct in english but this kind of a a no all narrator <laughs> and what what I like in this story is that by creating this persona, you have this uh, this person that you know nothing about, and the only thing that you get is is her perception, and her perception is uh, there is nothing uh, glorious about it. You know, it's like if you sit uh, in a train and you see a guy picking his nose and then taking whatever he got out of his nose and and kind of uh, smearing it. You know, on the seat, you're not Sherlock Holmes. You're just a guy who saw somebody did something disgusting and will probably never share it with anybody. And I think that, that there is something about her perception that 
that basically she sees the the kids and she sees the the snake guy and she sees the teacher and she imposes her thoughts on them you know when when she imagines where the teacher lives we don't know if this is where the teacher lives you know it just it could just be some prejudice or some kind of half invention so so it's almost like a a A, an invitation to another mind to say look what happens when I go to the museum and I don't know why I felt that there was something so so close and I, I'm protected about it that it made me immediately imagine that it's Janet frame yeah I mean it is it, it's true that she was in Philadelphia in 1967 and she went to the Natural History Museum and did see some snake handling that was that was documented somewhere so you Something there was something real and in, in her life that inspired this. No way to know if she actually saw a teacher you know collapse in in sobs and throw a snake on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the the one thing we get about this narrator is that she avoids first avoids the human heart instead she's she's going to go and catch up on American flora and fauna, and then quite clearly, she does take a journey through. some aspect of the human heart by watching Miss Aitchison and watching this scene. And then she's off to her train. <laughs> um, she's going to make, yeah. her, make her train. But something stays with her. And it's true that we have no way of knowing if the experience for this teacher was the experience that this narrator imagines. There's indicators. I, I feel that there is this kind of strong element of projection. You know, I really feel that there's something about the narrator that, speaking in a sense about herself and I also feel that that the way that she talks about what she sees like she's in a museum and it's as if she's looking at the exhibits you know it's like imagine you'd go to to a room in a museum and you see a husband and a wife fight you know because she really has this kind of a a outsider perspective nobody in the story, looks at her asking for help or asking for support. Nobody ignores her. It's almost as if she's there, but uh, she's just there uh, to, to watch. Yeah. I find that the last paragraph also really interesting. You know, first, we're told for the first time that it's freezing cold, that there are icebreakers. You know, suddenly we have a, a setting just as we're leaving the story. But then it, it's a short last paragraph, and there are two sentences that are almost identical there's she writes there would be no time to make the journey through the human heart and then she writes the journey through the human heart would have to wait until some other time it's like she's sort of you know hitting us on the head with this idea that that there has been no journey through the human heart when in fact we know that that's exactly what we've just read <laughs> it's a strange way to end it yeah I'm, I I must admit it when I read it also it uh, it kind of like It made me go and reread it saying why why does she repeat it I, I, I must I must say that for, for me I like the ending a little a little less than the rest of the story I like the idea of of her being in this kind of exhibit word in this word where where basically you have no physical body which is for me very much the word of writing you know when you sit in your room and you And you write something you you know you don't care about the weather or you don't care who the president is you know you're just in this kind of a pure and bare 
I don't know, human situation, and then you go out uh, to your life. So I liked that. But the way that the words put there, I didn't like the fact that the, the, the sentence, uh, the journey through the human heart would have to wait until some other time, was if I felt that if all the time she was able to avoid the obvious or the place where a Hollywood writer would go, then this was the only time where I felt that, you know, that she was kind of hitting me with a hammer, a yeah. small hammer. <laughs> well, she's also misleading you. She's saying, well, you didn't just get what you think you just got. You'll get that some yeah. other time. Yeah, but, 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 I, but I think that there is something about the repetition because the first time there would be no time to make the journey through the human heart. It made sense to me, you know, with going out, but the return... The journey through the human heart would have to wait until some other time. Then sometimes when you read a story, uh, you say somebody wrote it and in the end he says, oh, my God, how I'm going to call it? I don't know how I'm going to call it. You know, I'm going to call Deborah. Maybe she'll have an idea. That's usually what I do. <laughs> and uh, and uh, But sometimes you, when you write a story, the story is kind of being half born from its name. And I had a feeling that this is a story where, like, you know, where... It doesn't matter if she first saw something and then saw the sign you are now entering the human heart or something about the ability to enter the human heart. But I feel that it, it feels like this kind of name and this kind of story that you have the title before you even going to figure out what you're going to write. And with this in the title, to have it also in the ending sentence, then uh, for me, it's a little bit less stylish. But, you know, but who am I uh, to say that? <laughs> well, if you were the editor, you would have uh, crossed that out. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, I, uh, it would be aggressive to cross out, but I would say, hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting to have asked her why she did that. One thing that I, that I find so poignant about the story is this narrator rushes off and, and gets a train and says, you know, too bad, can't make this, this journey in the human heart now, I've got to go. But where do we leave Miss Aitchison? You know, what has happened to her? She's sobbing in a chair by the bears. And how is she ever going to regain the respect of her class, of the students? And, you know, where is she going to go from here? She doesn't have a train to catch. She's She's got a kind of personality or reputation to rebuild. For me, there is something about about this kind of the, the notion that we meet meet her and the class in the exhibit and we leave the exhibit that, that they're almost not a real, you know, they are, they're kind of a, a, a human situation being played for the narrator in a sense. And again, you know, leaving the human heart for a train is really like leaving the heart for rationality. You know, it's like kind of a, I feel immersed by some unexplained emotions and but I gotta go because I don't want to be late so it's the kind of brain winning again so so I think it kind of makes sense you know to leave the situation to leave your heart to go with the brain but I must say that you know when she left I didn't actually there's something about the way that she describes the teacher that uh, it seems as if the teacher like had horrible life to begin with you know she was before she was af afraid of harmless snakes she was afraid of other things that were probably as harmless, you know, of she would not walk out 
at night, you know, yeah. that in a sense you could say that it's this, the same irrational fears. So, so it's not as if like she felt that she thought she was brave and then she was beaten. She came beaten and then she was beaten again, you know, beating yeah. to pulp. Yeah. And so was the poor snake. He gets thrown to the yeah. floor. <laughs> the only person who comes out un, unharmed is the snake handler, who's sort of reptilian himself. But I think, you know, I, I kind of like the, the snake handler. Like, I mean, I don't think he's an interesting uh, character and I'm not empathic to it. But I think that, you know, I'm, I think most do-gooders do in this world have to have some kind of uh, uh, indifference or some kind of distance from reality. Because the idea is, I think, that if you were do-gooders, then, then you would automatically be overwhelmed by pain and suffering and you know imagine I don't know you're a doctor and you do all those actions and in the bottom line you're doing something that is good but you you're hurting people when you're checking them uh, you take huge risk when you operate on them you take decisions that might uh, make them die so so I think that you know that uh, that it's not a it's not the perfect job for oversensitive person. I wouldn't want an oversensitive surgeon to operate on me. Yeah, yeah. But this uh, this man is sensitive to snakes, not to people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but, but I could imagine, I could imagine, you know, that this really like this kind of overexcited person say, yeah, yeah, you and me. And it's, I, <laughs> somebody should fend for him you know one of us should say yeah, something nice yeah. about him well the narrator you know says he's he's perpetrated this small piece of useless torture you know so she's not very sympathetic to him it's interesting that there's also the, you know this little boy who goes through the same thing that the teacher goes through he kind of comes forward shame faced and then he runs back to the audience and the other kids say oh he's afraid and they laugh at him it's a sort of early version of what happens to the teacher. No one comes out of this totally uh, free. Yes, uh, but, but, but again, you know, if this guy wasn't in the museum and those people would never meet a snake or harm a snake or be humiliated by their inability not to be afraid of a thing that is harmless, would it make their life more full or more meaningful? I don't know. I think that, that that there is something about this experience that it's kind of experience that that can break you, but at the same time, it gives you some kind of opening to a new place. You know, I I feel I feel that you know, it's I don't like it when people say that something happens to me and they say that a bad thing happened to me because let's say when my father died, then many people say you know it's a bad thing that happened or it's not fair. And I, I don't know why, but but some instinct I would always say, it's not bad, it's sad. Because there is something about, I think, the, this kind of a painful processes that shows us that we're dependent and show us that we're wrong. They are the only ways that they, that we we can go deep and and touch something that is not on the surface. And, and I'm saying, like, I would be okay with, with somebody putting a snake on me and me being super scared of it and people seeing it. You know, I think that this is what I do for a living. I expose all kinds of my fear and weaknesses and and I kind of go deeper and I'm I'm disappointed of myself and and then I publish it. 
And people say you're brave, but the snake handler would say, you're not brave, there's nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and you know, the word brave, it's funny because uh, my father, you know, uh, just uh, had back operations that he was supposed to be very, very painful. And he told me, I'm so brave for taking this operation. And I say, you're not brave, you know, you're just doing the right thing. Like brave is like if you would jump on a grenade, you know, in a shopping mall and saving others. But there's, there's nothing altruistic about it. There is nothing, you know, it's just you do something that is painful and in the bottom line, it's good for you. So so I think the same like like the the snake handler, you know, it's I think it's complicated. It's a, I find myself, let's say that I don't, I'm not 100% with the narrate, narrator. I see her perception, but in the end, I just say, wow, we're going to someplace complex. This is a day that, you know, that the children in the class will remember, unlike most other days. This was a day that they didn't go on automatic pilot. They were authentic. You know, the guy who laughed at the teacher, the, the boy who laughed at the teacher, this was the day that he discovered that he's an asshole. <laughs> the boys that came and tried and kind of half failed, you know, he discovered, like, he discovered that he wanted to be different from uh, who he is. The girls who told the snake stories and kind of told him stories and, and so, sang to him, they're going to be on in American Idol next season. <laughs> well, it's educational. It's like, you know, it's, it's this uh, uh, Faulkner quote from a, a wild palm that between nothing and grief, I will always choose grief. And I think that there is, that there is something about it is that when you go through something, you know, it's, it's, you come out, I don't know, it's not that you come out different, but you, you learn something. And I, and I think that, that the idea to go to it and say, okay, you know, so tomorrow it will be tough to go to class because I, I lost the respect, but maybe tomorrow you go to class and you know, they see you as a human being and not as some some omnipotent teacher. And maybe there is something good in that. And maybe by seeing you afraid, you actually did something good for their education. You know, it's not it's not as simple as that. Well, thank you so much, Akar. Thanks. Janet Frame, who died in 2004, was the author of three volumes of autobiography, including An Angel at My Table as well as numerous works of poetry and fiction, including the novels Owls Do Cry and Faces in the Water. Between My Father and the King, New and Uncollected Stories was published posthumously in 2013. Edgar Carrot has published several short story collections, including The Bus Driver Who Wanted to Be God, The Girl on the Fridge, Suddenly a Knock on the Door, and Fly Already. His memoir, The Seven Good Years, was published in 2015. You can download more than 140 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.